Hello, and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're finishing Genesis chapter 6 and continuing all the way through chapter 10. Our theme this week is God's timing and briefly discussing the first ever covenant between God and mankind. Good stuff awaits, so let's start reading. Once again, not a whole lot to update you guys on for this past week, kind of continuing as normal, making slight adjustments here and there to my recording schedule. After the last two weeks, I have had major issues with trying to record, where either I'm continuing on a recording I already have, and it comes through really, really quietly, or I would press record and it wouldn't actually start recording, or the one time I somehow forgot to plug in the microphone, which again has never happened since I started doing this. And so after a lot of frustrating attempts at recording various things, both the podcast and uh, audiobooks for By Ways Unseen, I'm trying to like reduce my recording schedule. So I just do everything in one giant block on a couple days a week. So that's been going on, still moving forward with book four. Had a solid, solid writing day uh, early in the week. Ended up writing somewhere around 1,400 words. I might have actually written over 2,000 that day. My weekly goal is 3,000. So that's going along really well. Podcast is still continuing really well, setting up the blogs and things like that. Moving along, getting things done, really starting to get into the rhythm, and I'll probably end up having this all figured out just in time to go back to work, and then I'll have to figure out a new schedule. But that's uh, last year some point, I remember talking about that in either the update or the podcast itself, where schedules change. As soon as you get settled into one, something changes, you got to re kind of reorient yourself and get going again, and that's, that's what's going to happen. That's what life is, so still looking forward to everything that looks like this year is shaping up to be and potentially years into the future. So with that, let's get to today's topic. Like I said, nice and short update this week. Since childhood, we who have been raised in Christian households have been told the story of Noah and the flood. After the Russell Crowe film a few years ago, even those outside Christian homes might be familiar with at least the concept, if not the actual biblical events. I haven't seen the movie, but I trust it followed scripture very little. As we start in verse 9, of Genesis chapter 6, we see a few things very quickly. Noah, of all the people on the earth, and remember there are cities at this time, so we're not talking about just a handful of folks, was the only one righteous enough in God's sight to save. Noah and his family, eight people. And God also saves every single species of animals. Amazing how so many so-called Christians today don't think that ecosystems are important. But let's not dwell too long on that, at least not yet. We're also given the dimensions of the ark, a fascinating bit of detail, isn't it? But often when we're given a task, we can be overwhelmed by the details, especially if the task has never been done before. No one had made an ark before this that Noah might copy the plans or even expand upon them. And I can only imagine how many creatures there were at this time. So I can imagine Noah starting to try to calculate in his mind how big a vessel he would need to fit two of everything. And then God gives him the exact dimensions. This should comfort us in two ways. God knows what he is asking of us and knows what we need to obey his command. Whatever dimensions he gives us, it is sufficient. If Noah tried to rely on his own wisdom after God had given him his, he might have made it smaller to the loss of any amount of species of animals or had tried to make it bigger and it would have been unfinished by the time the rains and floodwaters came. This is why we must remain humble before God and build our lives to his exact specifications and dimensions, trusting him to provide for our daily needs. 
We know of many famous people who could not handle fame and were nearly or actually destroyed by it, or who had to foreclose on homes they couldn't afford, or endured no end of stress and strain trying to pay for a lifestyle they couldn't handle. We also know those who threw their lives away in self-doubt, never achieving what they might have because they thought themselves too small, insignificant, or unable to accomplish the tasks we knew they were capable of. Both groups of people might have been given dimensions for an ark by God, but tried to build it their own way and sank in the waters. Then we begin chapter 7, and Noah is told to bring seven pairs of every clean animal. Let's remember again that the Bible does not talk about clean or unclean animals until after the Israelites left Egypt and were given the law through Moses. And yet there is obviously some recognition already of this precept. We also see this. In verses 1 through 4, God commands Noah to enter the ark, and in seven days the flood will come. Then, in verse 7, Noah enters the ark with his family. Then the pairs of animals came to him. Recall in chapter 6, verse 19, God commands Noah to bring them. And yet, when the time came, God brought them to him. So, if we read these passages literally and chronologically, Noah would have assumed it was his responsibility to go out and gather all the animals. But then, instead, God simply tells him to get into the ark. He does, and then all the animals start coming to him. And Noah and his family are in the ark for seven days. Either, during which all the animals are coming, it would have been a heck of a procession after all, or they all came and everyone was inside the ark for seven days. No matter which way, Noah and his family at least were sitting in the ark for seven days before a drop of rain fell. But now notice that verses 11 through 13 say that on the very day that the rains began to fall, Noah entered the ark. Several things could be happening. Perhaps they went out to check and make sure no animals were lagging. Or day, in this instance, could be thought of as the phrase, in those days, meaning generally time, not a 24-hour period. Or the verses are also repeating a lot of other information, so it is merely pointing to the fact that this all happened in a relatively short period of time. These seven days are also interpreted by some scholars as the time after Methuselah's death, that the prophecy in his name might have made people think the flood or destruction or sending forth, we talked about a few weeks ago, might have come the exact time of his death. But instead, God specifies that seven days will pass between Methuselah's death and the beginning of the flood. So while it is not immediate or simultaneous, it was very quick. Finally, in verse 16, note that it specifies, Then the Lord shut him in. Assuming this door was large enough to allow an elephant to pass, it was a very large door, perhaps too big for Noah and his sons to move. It may have not even had hinges or a latch, but more important, I think, than that is still the recognition that it was God who shut him in, and would, therefore, keep him safe. He was still not to trust in the ark itself to save, but God. No matter what vessel we think we find safety, even one provided for us by God, it is still ultimately God and not the vessel that keeps us safe. So he can totally destroy that vessel, if he so chooses, and we are still kept safe. My wife and I thought nothing of spending money on November 11th, two years ago, because we felt safe in the job I had. November 12th, I am without a job, and suddenly we're spending no money we don't absolutely have to. And yet God is still the supplier of our needs, is he not? He didn't lay me off. He didn't suddenly say, no more providence for you. Now we can still be prudent and not try to purchase a new car, totally depleting our savings. I'm not saying that we should. We can't force God's hand, and our needs is exactly what he provides, as we've talked about a little bit ago. But we should not be frantic when it is God who shuts us in, who places us in the ark of his son Jesus to save us from the coming destruction. No job, home, neighborhood, family members, or political situation protects us more or less than God himself, if we trust in him and do as he commands. This doesn't mean we will be free from physical harm. 
But if eternal life awaits us, what does a little physical harm mean to us now? This is, of course, easy for me to say. But I hope by saying the words now over and over again, they will ingrain themselves into my default thought patterns against the time I might be forced to live up to them. Now the rains come and springs underground break out and the waters rise. Here's where doubt begins to creep in, because that is a lot of water. Some will say that earth here is a word also translated region. So maybe Mount Everest wasn't covered, but the entire region around where Noah lived was flooded. The problem with that idea is that it also says all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. High hills is a word also translated mountains, and heaven is the same word used in the creation story as the thing God created and called sky. And the next verse specifies that the mountains were covered to a depth of 15 cubits, or 23 feet depending on your translation. Some translations make it sound like the waters rose by 15 cubits and the mountains were covered, but obviously a 23-foot mountain is pretty small, so it probably means the former. Now, I will admit It's hard for me to imagine so much water that even Everest was covered. At 29,032 feet-ish, Everest is still growing, so it would have been a little shorter a couple thousand years ago. A one-foot-by-one-foot column of water from sea level to the height of Everest would be over 217,000 gallons. A cubic mile, which only gets us just under a fifth of the way up, is one trillion gallons. So we're looking at over five and a half trillion gallons of water just to raise one square mile of water to the height to cover Everest. The Earth's surface is 197 million square miles. I don't want to calculate that number and I don't think my iPhone can handle it. It also means rainfall at about 30 feet per hour, six inches per minute, an inch of rain every 10 seconds, everywhere in the entire Earth for 40 days. The current record, semi-officially, was set in 1947 and was 12 inches in an hour. Of course, we add in the springs of the earth gushing forth so the rainfall can be less than that. The point is, though, the flood is designed to destroy life. So it really only truly needs to rise above the habitable zone, which is still going to cover the majority of the mountains of the earth and certainly everything around where Noah lived, and is also still a lot of water. Also of interest is the importance of 40 days the length of time the rains fell and the springs released their waters. Also, the length of time Moses spent on the mountain with God, the length of time Elijah went into the wilderness to meet with God, and the length of time Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And is also around the amount of time an average otherwise healthy person can expect to go without food before dying. While full 40-day fasts are not particularly prescribed by scripture, fasting is, and as a way to bring our bodies under submission to our spirits. To recognize we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We've talked a little about this in an earlier episode. It is important for Christians to fast, so we remember that we are spirit beings. Our bodies would have us believe if we try to go a full day without eating, and some of us can barely go eight hours, we must necessarily be grumpy and feel malnourished. Instead, we have this image over and over in scripture of the importance of 40 days for cleansing from sin. As we said, Moses was 40 days on the mountain receiving the law of God. Elijah was 40 days in the desert to rid himself of this notion that he should give up his prophetic ministry because Jezebel promised to kill him. And Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before beginning his ministry here on earth. Back to Genesis. And the waters prevailed over the earth for 150 days, just over five months. Chapter 8. The waters recede, and by the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on Ararat. Then the waters continued to recede for two and a half more months, 40 more days, until Noah sends out a raven. But it's able to continue flying even with nowhere to land. So he sends out a dove, but it returns. Seven more days, and it brings back an olive leaf. Seven more days, 
and it doesn't return. It is now the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year. Almost 10 months they've been cooped up in the ark, floating along with all the animals of the earth. Noah removes the covering and sees the ground is dry, and he stays in the ark. The door is wide open, and they stay inside. For almost two more months, verses 13 through 16. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. And there is a great outpouring of creatures as the ark empties a year and ten days after they first went into it. 969 years from the birth of Methuselah predicting the flood possibly 120 years from the proclamation by God of the shortening of mankind's years, somewhat less than 100 years to build the ark. Scripture isn't clear beyond saying that Noah had three sons after he was 500. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, God commands him to build an ark for him and his sons and sons' wives in Genesis 6, verse 18, and the floodwaters came when he is 600 in Genesis 7, verse 6. Noah is in the ark possibly seven days before the rains come, then they are aboard the ark for a year and ten days. Not to put too dark a spin on this, but as of this recording, we're a month and a half away from spending as much time in a pandemic as Noah spent in the ark. And we haven't been locked down the entire time, at least not here in Ohio. I saw a piece of video recently that talked about what they called toxic positivity, and especially took issue with phrases like, look at what you have, not what you don't and drawing comparisons to people who have it worse. Their issue with this kind of positivity is they felt it nullifies people's experiences. This may sound harsh, but I'm not trying to nullify anyone's experience. I'm trying to nullify unwarranted feelings around your experience. I'm guessing for a lot of you, thousands of alarm bells just went off, so let me try to silence at least some of them. I am not of the crowd that believes feelings are something to be suppressed, that feelings and emotions are only the result of weakness. But I also want to remind those who follow Christ of some very important facts. Our spirit is at war with our flesh. Our flesh nature is fallen, corrupt, susceptible to temptation from Satan. We are told countless times in scripture to remember. Remember that God will take care of you, that his grace is sufficient, that he will supply your daily needs. And since that is the case, and if we truly trust in God then whatever it is we are given is enough. It may not be as much as we want, but since God promised to provide, then it is enough for our needs, no matter how little it appears to be. Five loaves and two fishes is utterly insignificant in the face of 5,000 plus people needing to eat. Can you imagine even taking a small party of 20 to a restaurant for a night out, and they bring out one platter with five rolls, no butter, and two tilapia fillets, and walk off. The point is not that Noah had it worse and so we should shut up. The point is Noah had it worse and God still took care of him. Here again, the wisdom of the world falls short when it doesn't include God. So yes, just telling your kids that there are starving children in Africa and so they should just be thankful is meaningless and hurtful to their emotional needs. Reminding them that God loves children and provides for them is far more helpful than just giving them more material things. Noah knew God had carried them through severe destruction, and rather than lamenting the lost years, all the people he knew that were dead, having to spend a year and ten days with his in-laws and two or fourteen of every kind of animal, and then sitting in the ark looking at the dry land for almost two months before finally being told he can go out, instead he was grateful to have been spared. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The result of his thankfulness? Something we should be supremely thankful to him for. 
verses 21 and 22. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. In chapter 9, a number of interesting and important things happen. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. So first, note that prior to this, we might infer the animals were not afraid of humans. Only after God permitted humans to eat the animals did they begin to fear us, which makes sense. We were not a predator at that point. Even in the animal kingdom today, most herbivorous creatures are not afraid of other herbivores. But also note then that all the way up until Noah, humankind were vegetarians. Finally, there is no indication of unclean foods at this point. It says everything that lives and moves about will be food. The only stipulation coming in verse 4 is that they must drain the blood of the meat before they eat it. Verses 4 through 6. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. All creation is subject to the importance of the blood. God even demands an accounting from the animals, which we also see in the laws given to Moses regarding livestock that gore someone to death. Now the covenant, our first one, verses 8 through 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is also our indication that this great flood was not merely regional, because we see regional floods all the time, which would mean God has abandoned his covenant. What I want you to remember, and we'll see as we continue through scripture, is that God never abandons his covenants. He either establishes another on top of what already exists, or if he replaces one, it is only ever with a better one. Continuing to read. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, a complaint I've heard is that a rainbow is a naturally occurring phenomenon. It is just refraction of sunlight through raindrops. So how did God only just now create the first rainbow as a sign in the clouds? Well, for one thing, it doesn't necessarily say that this is the first time ever a rainbow has appeared. God simply states that he is the one who puts it there, and it will be the sign. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that he simply pointed out an existing phenomenon and ascribed to it new importance. Secondly, if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says this, The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And it never revokes this phenomenon. So, for all we know, if we approach scripture from the beginning and without preconceptions, is that rain had never ever fallen on the earth until Noah, and thus no rainbow would have been in the sky. Also note this, because this is something else that happens with God a lot and is of critical importance. Notice that the sign of his covenant is something he himself created. It is not dependent on mankind's faithfulness for God to remember his covenant. 
No, he puts the rainbow in the sky, and when he does, he sees it and remembers his covenant. We'll see this again with Abraham whenever we finally get there, and we see it with Christ. It is when God looks at Christ, whom God himself put on the cross, that he remembers the new covenant and saves all who believe in Christ. We don't need to remind him, which is good because we humans quickly fall away. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Now, it's important to note that this is the first time the word vineyard is used in the Bible. There's a little footnote in the NIV that offers a second translation. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. So it's possible he had no idea what the wine would do to him because no one had been drunk before, and therefore the sin was not strictly his. But what happens next, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. By going and telling the state of Noah, Ham was disrespectful. He did not honor his father by pointing out his state of disgrace. Noah learns what happened and renames his thirdborn from a word meaning humiliated and subjection, subjecting him to the rule of his brothers. Then he praises Shem and Japheth who treated him with respect and blesses them. In light of this, I would ask us who are Christians what we think is to be gained by making public the disgrace of others, even if the disgrace is true and earned. From almost the beginning, this is not portrayed as good and is thus not part of the nature of God. We can see in Christ that he covers our sins and our disgraces if we forgive others. For him, all it gained him was a curse. Chapter 10 is another series of genealogies, a couple names and nations to pay attention to, especially among the sons of Ham, Egypt and Canaan in verse 6, Babylon, Assyria, and Nineveh in verses 10 through 11, Philistines in verse 14, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, and Hivites in verses 15 through 17. Every one of these would become an enemy to Israel in the future, some not until far into the future after Solomon's reign, all already established as cursed servants to Shem from whom came the Shemites, Israelites. So we can start to see that God's plan and timing is already being established here by chapter 10 of Genesis. The conflict between God's people and not God's people is established and will not see resolution until the New Testament. But none of it happens quickly. Far beyond the reigns of just 40 days is another 335 days in the ark before finally coming out onto dry land. And under the new covenant, we might think of the cover being removed. We can see, however dimly, the kingdom of God, and yet we are not yet told to come out into it. God has still sealed us in, and all his destruction planned against the sin in the world introduced in Genesis 5 is not yet thoroughly cleansed. The land is dry, but it is not completely dry. Trust God. Remember, he has taken care of you in the past and will continue to protect you until you enter fully into eternal life in his perfect but often inscrutable timing. Next week, we'll continue into chapter 11 and see how far we'll get. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school. Music